Oral Histories of the National Railway Museum. The National Railway Museum Oral History Podcast. In part two, Helen Hill continues her story with Bob Sampson and Frank Hussey about her long-term experience working in the rail industry. So you had effectively left and you'd been doing some travelling and you yeah. came back and joined National Rail. Yeah, so when I was working in Senwag, Max Michelle actually rang me and said that this whole thing was going down with mm. National Rail and that you know he, he was going to work over in, mm. in Adelaide. Mm. And he said to me, you know, we're looking for some unit administrators and would you be interested in coming across? And I said, oh, okay. That's how it all kind of started. Right. So it was Max who really recruited you in that sense. Mm. And that was actually quite an innovative team with Max. You know, there was Peter Page. The one that I've never forgotten was Jeff Lane. He was a crusty old bugger. Yeah. But he knew his stuff. Of course, he'd come up the ropes, you know. Yeah, he really knew his stuff. He was a bit of a mentor to me as well. You know, like I really respected his knowledge. Mm. And... I always wanted to learn mm. more about the business and, I, and like you say talking to some of those old fellas I suppose you'd call them like Jeff Lane well they're really crusty old buggers some of them he was really good to me and I never felt like they wanted me to just bugger off and mm. you know get back in your hole and we don't want to teach you any of this stuff mm. they were really open that particular period of time and I remember it very well was by then I was also in corporate affairs at AN once the word got around about, well, first there was the formation of the National Rail Freight Initiative mm. Group, and then there was this talk about a national rail body being formed by the federal government and that all of the interstate traffic would be taken away. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the heavy people at AN started going elsewhere, and certainly a lot ended up with National Rail. Yeah. Some left the rail industry altogether. Yeah. You could tell that they're getting the band out to play the song on the Titanic. <laughs> And even my direct boss at the time, Jim Hallion, who oh, yeah. had been a long-term SA yeah. government craftsman, he jumped ship as well. And, and it, the writing become more and more obvious. By this stage, Don Williams had gone to the Submarine Corporation. Yeah. And as part of that, with Christina Holmdale yes. coming on board because her husband was with the yeah. Submarine Corporation, she didn't really know how it was all going to go. Yeah, but... It was also an opportunity. Some people didn't of course. see it as an I saw, opportunity. I saw opportunities. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. We must be getting close to Freightlink. Uh, you stayed with National Rail into PN, didn't you? Yeah, National Rail PN. Yeah. So I was there for nine years. Mm. Did your role change with Yeah, the role PN? changed quite a few times. Mm. When Tony came in and formed the Steel Link Group, yep. Tony really transformed the way we dealt with customers. Mm. He was so customer-focused. And like you said, Graham Yench, and you yep. know, there's quite yep. a few people that came across, and I think that really was the beginning of the change in how people felt about customer service. And I remember Tony Aldridge used to say to me, it's not a train, it's a service. So we were never encouraged to say, oh, that train is running late. It was always that service is running late, or we've mm. got to do what we can to get that service mm back on time and he formed the whole structure for all the KPIs within that steel business because mm. that was a huge business this, mm. that steel contract oh. was huge for mm. National Rail mm. after Steel Link had been going for some time so I did as the wagon deployment officer and the resource planner in the operations control centre that was actually a shift work role so for two years I did 24-7 shift work mm. 
But again, that was an opportunity for me to learn a lot more about the business. And in that time, there were other businesses established. There was Sea Train and Trailer Rail. But by that time, you were up in the operations centre, weren't you? Looking at train movements across all of the sectors. Well, I was still mainly focused on steel length, I reckon. Mm -hmm. But then I became the business operations coordinator for Steelink. Right. So that was out of the deployment and wagon resource planning area right. into more of the business side. Okay. So I did a lot of stuff with customers then. Mm-hmm. And then I also relieved as the Steelink manager for the Melbourne region. And so I spent a couple of different stints working over in Melbourne. That was when Arthur Camberis was the mm. Steel Link manager for, for Melbourne. And again, that gives a lot of opportunity to learn more about that side of the business mm. and the customer interface. Mm. So I really formed some good relationships with a lot of those customers. Mm. Georgia Rex was the, then was the Steel yes. Link manager. Yes. And Arthur in Melbourne. And you had the driver's team in the Steel Link Melbourne yard. That's right. Because the operations was split because there was a steel on one side and the intermodal on the other mm. side. Mm. But, you know, that was good to see the intermodal side of that business as well, mm. not having directly worked in the intermodal side back then. And it was mostly the steel link side. Mm. I mean, everyone was really generous with their experience and their knowledge back in, you know, in those times. But still, it was a very... And it still is very male-dominated. So I'd go out into the steel terminal with my safety gear on and people would sort of take a double take that, you know, there was a woman walking around in steel caps and safety vests. That's right. But one thing that Ron Robertson did when he came into that area, he insisted that all of the clerical staff, and not everyone wanted to do it, went out on trains. So my first train trip was with bloody Maury Ellis mm. and Dennis White. Oh, right. And it was the bloody goods train that went from Dry Creek to Melbourne. Mm. And it was before the track was standardised. Mm. So I think it took us six hours to get to Taylor Bend. Bend. That'll be right. Because bloody Dennis and Maury said to me, right, if you're coming with us, you've got to bring the morning tea. Mm. Wifey again. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd gone out and bought all these bloody packets of biscuits and stuff. and But that was really good, you know. And well, I don't know if I should say this, but bloody Dennis said, come on, get in the seat. Yes. So, you know, I'm sitting in the driver's seat and I remember we were going through Murray Bridge or somewhere and there was people taking double tapes at the platform because there was this yeah. woman sitting in the seat. I mean, you'd never do that now. You know? I remember I dropped hints at the time to Robbie about this spreading of experience and different things and I said, oh, what's the chance of me getting a ride on a freight train to Taliban or whatever? He says, you've already done enough of this. You don't need to go and do more. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, Laurel Black went out on a locomotive. Oh, look, it was very important. I used yeah. to encourage a lot of that. Uh, so then I did quite a few locomotive trips. When I was in the Steel Link area, I did a trip down to Western, Western Port. Port. Did the slab transfer and, um, yep. you know, the containers and mm-hmm. went down to the mm. steel mill down at Western Port and yes. actually saw the steel mm. in the tread wells at Wyala. Mm. And yep. then you, you'd see it. Finally, been rolled coming, out. Yeah, coming out as a, you know the slab yeah, and yeah. all the rest of the billet. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that that Ron Robbie got back a fair bit now, but jumping around, 
like research and development used to do those resource management courses and I did one in Port Augusta with Des Leach. Yeah, he yeah. was in that group. He was yeah. in that. Yeah. And Ron Horn. Yeah, that's him. And so I went out to Lee Creek and then into the power station and watched them tipping yeah. the coal. Yeah. So there was things like that that not a lot of people got to do. Mm. So, you know, some of those things have been really good, you know, so far as reminiscing about those sort of mm. things that a lot of other people have never had those sort of opportunities You're right. You're right. to do. And then, of course, you know, the powerhouse and all that shut down eventually. And yeah. But, you know, having some of those experiences, I would never have had that opportunity without Ron Robertson. Yeah, yeah. So... Key influence in your life, obviously. Absolutely. Mm. And then going to the old bogey exchange down at Dry Creek. Oh, yes. God. So you transitioned into Pacific National, but your role was essentially the same? As the resource planner. Yes. And then I became the business operations coordinator for the Steelink Group. Right, right. Um, so that was, in a sense, the change from National Rail to Pacific National, as far as you were concerned, was a sort of just a continuation of your role, albeit you were promoting yeah. yourself through the business yeah. chain. Yeah. At what stage did you move from Pacific National then to Freightlink? So when I was at National Rail, I was rag and deployment, mm-hmm. then I was resource planner, then I was the service quality administrator, mm-hmm. and then I was the steel link manager from acting in Melbourne, mm-hmm. and that was over two periods. Then I was the business operations coordinator for steel link, right. and that was what I really where I finished with yeah. National Rail. Right. Or Pacific National, National as it was then. Yeah. And then I went to Freightlink just about two weeks before the first train ran to Darwin. Okay, right. And that was in 2004. So the resources, the recruiting of the resources must have been happening throughout 2004, ready for the first train. Well, I, I remember I was working up in corporate affairs and every time there was an election, Laurel Black and a couple of the others would work on the numbers for the Darwin line. And it was always poo-pooed, like it was never going to make sense. And I remember talking to someone and said, all these train buffs, you know, want this track to go to Darwin. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. It's never going to make sense. And then I remember clearly when it was announced that the freight link was actually going to start and Mm. trains would be running to Darwin. And I got offered the job at freight link. And my mother said to me, you said that line would never happen, and now you're working for them. (laughs) You wouldn't have been the only one. I know. So I actually started there a couple of weeks before we ran the first train. Mm. And that were really exciting times. And I always think I was so lucky that, you know, I started with National Rail when it was very early days and you saw that business grow and how enthusiastic everyone was and everyone was in there doing their best Mm. and then when Pacific National came along and there was the combination with Freight Corp Mm. things sort of it lost its mojo it did yeah things sort of went a bit downhill from there because obviously Freight Corp thought that they knew more about running trains than what anyone at National Rail did it almost reminded me of the old Commie and Sari thing you know where Mm. it took a long time to try and integrate that you're starting now at Franklink but 
what I'm intrigued about is that you're back again working with a lot of people that you've known through different stages of the rail industry. Well, Tony Aldridge was in the mailing room Uh, back in 74. Exactly, and some of the guys, well, I mean, we've already mentioned him, but, I mean, John Fullerton you've seen in various capacities as well, and you're back with him. Well, he was the young, shy guy that used to come to Ron Robbie's meetings and, you know, he'd come from Port Augusta. Tom Hampton on the track side of it. Damien and Roy Paul and John Fullerton and Kingsley and Con Alexandridis. But you must have made several trips on the Darwin line in your various freight link roles. Yeah, the last one that I remember doing was when Union Reef opened and I did the trip with the drivers back from Union Reef. And I reckon I did one around Port Augusta. So there were a few front of loco trips. Mm. I mean, the freight link, that was really exciting times. Mm. That was when I first met Tim Fisher and, you know, Tim used to come to all the, the board meetings and Tim used to catch the train. You know, he'd stay in a hotel in Adelaide and he'd catch the train from the Adelaide railway station down to Bowie. Oh, station yeah. There. That'd be Tim. He would always come in and say, G'day, how's things going? Yeah, remarkable man. Mm. And you know, the one thing that I've never forgotten about Tim Fisher, when we had the 10th anniversary, he used to call me the Lady Hill, probably because I was one of the only females, or he couldn't remember my name, I don't know, but he used Mm. to call me the Lady Hill. He said, I want to spend some time with the Lady Hill talking about the Darwin line for the 10th anniversary. So, you know, we talked about the number of trains, the tonnages, you know, how the business had grown. And so I'd been involved from the very beginning. So I sort of, you know, a lot of this was stored in the memory bank. And the next day, he did the talk about the 10th anniversary of the line. Mm. And he talked about all of those numbers that I talked to him about with no notes. That would have been him. No notes whatsoever. And I thought, shit, I've taken 10 years to learn all of this sort of stuff. Mm. But he reeled off everything. And I thought... That was pretty good stuff. Yeah, very strong advocate for rail he was. He was. And we had a chat about the limited amount of crossing loops between Mm. Alice Springs and Darwin. And he said to me, I've got an idea when the business grows. He said, I want to make Adelaide River a crossing loop. Mm. And he said, I want to call it the Anzac Loop. And his idea was that he wanted on the sleepers the names of all of the soldiers that had died in the war. Mm. And I thought, people don't do that sort of stuff now. Mm. And, he, and he said to me, you know, if you could have another loop anywhere, where would you want it? And I said, uh, well, could I push for two? Because we really kind of need one <laughs> yeah. between Newcastle Waters yeah. and Catherine. Catherine. Mm. Hundreds of k's. Oh, I think it was a three-hour, 45 mm. section. Mm. So, you know, we had a bloody slip pinion on one of the locos. Mm. And it was stuck between Newcastle Waters and Catherine. Catherine. The whole track was closed for days because by the time you got people out there, exactly. then you got to run back at like 10 k's an hour with someone preceding the movement. Yeah, that was just a bloody disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, they still run those sections. That's still a three hour, 45 yes. minute section. It is. Um, and then there's the big one between Alocra and yeah, Alice Springs. You know, I think that's two and a half hours, two hours forty between there. How did it make you feel when, within a short period of time, Freightlink was then up for sale? That was seven years, I reckon. Yeah. And I remember um, Malcolm Kinnaird coming in to the office 
Oh, I mean, he was an absolute character. I mean, he he was on the first train that went to Darwin, him and Tim and mm. all the dignitaries in the world that you could ever imagine. And we had the two freight-link locos, FQ1 and FQ2, painted up. And at Alice Springs, we had to reverse the locos because the Aboriginal, Aboriginal land council issues. So they had to stop and reverse the engines <laughs> because there was a lot of complaints that FQ1 led out of Adelaide. But then when they got to Alice Springs, they had to change them. So the FQ2, I think, ended up leading into Darwin. So there was a bit of a kerfuffle about that. Tribal stuff. Yeah, tribal stuff. But the other funny story about that was every man and his dog wanted to be in the locos that pulled into Darwin. Oh, yeah. And so Mike Wilde and I went down to the MPC and grabbed a couple of other people to see how many people we could squeeze into the cab of an FQ <laughs> to see how many hangers honors could be sitting yeah. in the cab as the first train rolled into Darwin. And one of the most stupid questions that Mike Wilde actually told me this story, one of the Polly's hanger honors asked if they really needed the driver to be in the locomotive or, or two drivers to be in the locomotive when it rolled into Darwin. To see how many they could squeeze into the cab. And then they had to make that set of stairs that we used to call the Howard steps. Oh yeah. So that Mrs. Howard could walk down the steps rather than try and, you know, climb down, down the, the, ladder. the ladder of a locomotive. So back in Freightlink, you found yourself surrounded by a number of familiar faces. Yes. Tony Aldridge. Tony Aldridge. Yeah, Mike, Mike Wilde. Mike John Fullerton, of course, and Mila. Well, yeah. John Fullerton didn't start with National Rail. He came after Bruce McGowan. So Bruce right. McGowan was the first, first freight link. The CEO. CEO, yeah. He came from Melbourne. I reckon he was there for maybe 12, 18 months, and then right. John took over the reins from right. that. But Bruce McGowan. Everyone got on with Bruce, you know, he was that sort of bloke, but he used to come every second or third day or once a week or twice a week and he'd say to me, what was the tons on last night's train? So I knew that I didn't know whatever day Bruce was going to come to my desk and say, how many tons were on that train? How big was that train? How late was that train? So I, every day I had to know exactly what had gone <laughs> yeah, on the night You never before. knew what day he was going to come. Because I never knew when he was going to come. But that was a really good learning curve for me. Yeah. And I remember when, and not so long ago, GWA took over Freightlink. One of the guys that is still there, Shane Hennessy, who's still up in Darwin, he said to me, when he first started up there, I used to do the same thing to him that Bruce did to me. And he said that was the best thing that ever happened because he knew every morning that I was going to say to him, uh, you know, how big was the train out of Muckety last night or, you know. So it was the same thing for him. And so I did that all the way through. When anyone would come new into the team, I'd say, how, how big was last night's train? What was the TEU count on that train? Yeah. What was the percentage utilisation on that train? <laughs> Everybody knew that at some stage I'd come around and go, oh, what's the stats on that train? But very important trends, aren't they? 
I mean, we all know there's certain ratios and figures mean a lot. Yeah, mm. that's right. Mm. Yeah. And freight availability became the big buzzword yeah. at GWA. Yeah. Particularly with the Yanks and the intermodal side of the business. Mm. And traditionally, the, the Yanks were into manifest trains, that is to say, just general mixed trains. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Very rarely, especially back then, was these block intermodal container trains. Yeah. And when the trains first started running, one of the engineers had a great idea that they'd run with WPR 2000 wheel profiles. Well, on the Darwin line, that turned out to be an absolute disaster because I remember bloody Tony came out one day. The customers had been on, I reckon it was Noel Goldsworthy, he was one of the big kahunas in Wyala. And, you know, he rang Tony and said, the train had arrived in Newcastle, I reckon, and it was like spaghetti. The bundles had all split. So, you know, they were all saying it was rough riding and all the train handling was a big thing. You know, it was always this, that and the other. And then when the train started running to Darwin and the the freight, some of the, well, some of the examples were some of the freight that got up there. Jeff Lauder, who ended up at Freightlink, worked for Toll, I think it was, and they'd sent a whole container full of fruit trees in reefers up to Darwin. And I remember Jeff rang and he said when they got to Darwin, <laughs> there were sticks. Everything had been <laughs> shaken off of Jeez. these, what was supposed yeah. to go into the stores as fruit trees. They were just sticks. Mm. Then there was plates, some sort of ceramic plate where that had gone up there. And it was all just almost mud by the time it got there. It, the rough riding was so bad. Mm. And they put cameras, I think, on some of the wagons and the rough riding and the hunting was just unreal. Like yeah, I saw the videos of the hunting on those trains. Dangerous stuff. Mm. And that was why the freight was all getting up there yeah. in terrible condition. Coke cans went up there and there was no labels on the side of the cans by the time they got there. The, the movement mm. had and the friction... They were, and they were clean skins by yeah, the time they got to Darwin, some of them. So they were interesting times in the early days of Freightlink. Mm. But then when they got the wheel profile sorted, mm. things started to improve. Mm. There were a lot of issues with that Darwin track. I mean, the hydrology hadn't been great at some point. The culverts weren't big enough in some areas. So Freightlink did a lot of work in that area and then GWA inherited a lot of that and then the old 80 pound rail track wasn't great you know there was yeah. some issues with that but the freight link times were probably some of the best times I've had in the rail because it was just so exciting and everyone was enthusiastic thanks for listening to this oral history podcast from the National Railway Museum <laughs>